This is a special episode in the honour of Are You OK Day. Rita Slowgrove will talk about resilience and the brain. She'll explain how we can improve our brain health to become more resilient in life. So sit back, relax if you can, and open your mind up to what Rita has to say. Hi everyone, I'd like to talk to you today for a few minutes around how we can improve our brain health in order to improve resilience. Resilience, in terms of a definition, can sometimes be someone's ability to bounce back despite adversity, but it's also someone's ability to advance when faced with that same adversity, to move forward despite what's going on. And while there are some behavioural tools and tricks to support you too, which are hugely important and valuable, I want to talk today about some of the things we can do to improve our brain health, to really give ourselves a fighting chance to really advance despite adversity when faced with these difficult situations. And to do that, we're going to talk about the brain and its functionality. The brain in terms of resilience, can really be categorized into two elements, the smart brain and the impulsive brain. Now, the smart brain we refer to as the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus. The prefrontal cortex is what we call, say, our common sense brain, our objective thinking brain, our should we or shouldn't we, let's think about this part of the brain, our I wouldn't do that if I were you part of the brain. Now, teenagers don't really have this developed. And if you, you know, remembering when you were a teenager or you do have or know teenagers, you'll find that often they, they don't always have that rational thought or some of the decisions they make. Well, that's because the prefrontal cortex tends to develop and solidify around about age of 20. It's hugely helpful. And in fact, the majority of strategies involving resilience are put in place to allow the prefrontal cortex to be as involved as possible. Now, the hippocampus, the hippocampus is very important as well. It's a little uh, seahorse-shaped part of the brain that sits right buried in the middle, and it is the source of deep emotion and memories, so a very important part of the brain, one that associates the smell of baked bread with a memory or one that allows you to think, actually, last time that happened, this is what occurred. So together with the prefrontal cortex, they can be incredibly helpful for you to make rational and objective decisions. The prefrontal cortex, however, is diminished in its capacity when you are tired, when you are stressed, when you are intoxicated, Any of those things will diminish your capability of a prefrontal cortex usage. It also doesn't work so well when you're faced with a threat to your life. And that's where the impulsive brain jumps in. And we call that the amygdala. The amygdala is only the size of an almond. It's a small part of the brain. But it is designed to interpret threats and basic emotions, impulsive emotions such as fear. 
What the amygdala does when faced with a threat to your life is it helps the brain to produce stress hormones called cortisol and adrenaline. And they pulse through your body, they increase your heart rate, they put your senses on high alert and help you to either run away or fight whichever threat you're faced with. Sometimes freeze, yes, but mostly fight or fright. Very, very helpful, but quite primitive. Now, we need the amygdala in our lives. We need the amygdala if we're about to cross the road and a car is coming to pull us out the way. Or when we're faced with a threat that we can't fight, that we run away from. We need that. And the amygdala in this instance bypasses any logical part of the brain because it's not needed in that time. In fact, a fast response is needed. When stress hormones are pulsing through our body, it's very, very high intense. I remember a situation where I came across a big python in my backyard um, and, and my brain interpreted a threat. In all reality, the python was probably more scared of me than I of it, but that was not processed in my brain at the time. Stress hormones pulsed through my body and I took off and I ran away. I was exhausted by the time I reached my destination because of all the stress hormones pumping through my body. Now, what's really important here is that it's not sustainable. It's not designed to be. We're not designed to stay at that high alert status all of our lives or all of the time. In fact, it is exhausting. And to be honest, too much cortisol pumping through your body is not good for your heart. So why is this a problem if we have a logical part of the brain and an impulsive part of the brain? Well, it's because in today's days and age, our brain can't tell the difference between a real threat and a threat to our ego. That's why we get outraged in traffic situations or rush off and buy toilet paper or whatever impulsive behavior that is because our brains perceive a threat and we respond accordingly. We call that the amygdala hijack because it's probably not necessary for us to engage in that fight or flight situation. In a work context or a personal context, that may lead to us saying something we regret or apologizing for something because we kind of got a bit heated in the moment. When your brain health is low, so when you're low in resilience, you are far more likely to have an amygdala hijack. People will see you as overreacting. Your heart rate will increase and you may lash out or say something or get emotional. Now, this isn't very good for whoever is at the receiving end of that, but it's certainly also not good for you or your resilience. Your heart's not designed to beat that fast all of the time and you'll end up extremely fatigued and low in resilience. When our brain health is low, we just can't function. We tend to get sick more often. We're very tired. We feel stressed and we actually reach for bad foods. So what can we do about this? Well, we can do little things to help increase our brain health in order to combat this low resilience. It's like wearing a suit of armor or a seatbelt when you're in the car or a suit of armor to defend yourself against an incoming situation. You've just got that little bit extra, little bit extra to help you. And they fall into three categories, exercise, food and sleep. Now, I'm not about to tell you anything you don't know. What I'm going to do is talk about these three things in the context of resilience and encourage you to consider taking just a baby step towards improving these three things in your life. Don't go for a full makeover. That's going to be hard to sustain. But what are some tiny little steps you can take? The first is exercise. 
Exercise with a resilience lens means move more. Doesn't matter what you're doing, move more because it increases blood flow to the brain and makes us think better and makes us more alert. Whether it is going and filling up your glass of water every time you need it, whether it is walking the long way around the block to get something or walking to clear the letterbox every day or dancing or yoga or playing with fur babies or human babies or whatever it is. Move more. Now, if you like going to the gym or you like running or you like exercise, that's fine. Keep going. If you don't, really don't, don't try. But think about what exercise means to you and do more of it. Even if it's standing up to move your arms and legs around every hour if you happen to be working. It's very, very good for the brain because we get that flow of blood and we can do better and think better. And what happens when we feel stressed generally is that we tend to stop exercising. We don't have time. I'm too tired. I've got so much on. I just, I just can't face it right now. So the challenge in order to increase your brain health and increase your resilience is don't cut this out. Whatever it is that you consider to be exercising, for me, it's just walking around the block. For me, it's doing some stretches or just getting up and standing sometimes when I'm on a phone call with someone or walking around. Don't cut it out. Prioritize it. Prioritize it knowing that you'll be more alert once you've done it and actually able to do your work or have conversations with people better. The next is sleep. Most working, studying adults or adults caring for others are not getting the recommended amount of sleep per night. Now, it varies per person. It's somewhere between seven and nine hours. Now, if you have babies or, or toddlers, just do your best. You, your sleep is governed by a, a very determined and assertive little person. But for everybody else, we tend as adults, particularly in 2020, We've decided that sleep is, is not that important for us. We fill our days, our hours with other things, work, people, friends, internet, Netflix, whatever it is, we chock a full our day. And we generally don't prioritize sleep. We're too busy. My challenge here is consider having a little bit more because of the drastic positive impact you can have by having some more sleep, just a little bit more. Because lack of sleep impacts your ability to concentrate. It impacts your ability to get things done. So if you don't have enough sleep, if you're tired, and I guarantee many people listening to this are, you'll have to double check your work more often. You can't be strategic as much as you'd like to be. You may work longer hours, but be less productive. Your quality of work will drop as is the quality of your decisions. So you can see here you're creating this vicious cycle of fatigue. Whereas actually, if you got 20 minutes more sleep or 10, ask any, any nurse the glory of a 10-minute power nap, your brain will focus better. I had a brain injury about 10 years ago um, from sports, a concussion, and I recovered with sleep. And the only way I was able to recover was through sleep. So the first few months I fought that. And I decided that that was a silly idea, but it wasn't until I slept and slept in a routine way for longer that I was able to recover. 
What's also really important is that when you're tired, your brain starts producing more cortisol, that stress hormone, just in case a fight or fight comes up. And that's not great because the amygdala hijacks just waiting in the wings to get involved. Inattention and lack of focus and fatigue is a significant factor in safety incidences. It's really, really important. People who average less than seven hours of sleep a night are also three times more likely to develop a cold and need time off anyway. And lower levels of resilience is linked to depression, stress tolerance, and higher likelihood of interpersonal difficulties and anxiety. So we need to consider prioritizing sleep. Now, I went to see a dietitian a, a, a little while ago, and she was helping me with my food intake. And then she said to me, now you're going to need to go home and go to bed. And I said, well, I don't need to go to bed because I'm busy and I like filling up my life with other things. And also I'm eating healthy, so it's fine. She said, you're exhausted. Go to sleep three times, early three times in a row and see how you feel. I felt amazing. So then I came back into my life and I said, well, what am I going to do to get a little bit more sleep? So we made a rule in our house because we like doing that. And the rule was if you're working or uh, after dinner, you have to pull out the power plug on your laptop. So you can only work as much as the battery lasts and then you have to go to bed. If you're watching shows on Netflix, you can keep watching shows, but if a show ends and it's 9.30 or earlier or 9.29 and earlier, you can watch another show. If it's 9.30 or later, bedtime. So we implemented that because we thought that was a cool idea. And eight months later, we're still doing it. It's brilliant. I highly recommend it. And lastly, let's talk about food. Food has a significant impact on the brain. What I want to talk about in particular is foods that are 50% sugar and higher. So your burgers, your fries, your lollies, your um, high sugar alcohols. We love these. And, and as a culture, we have evolved to, to create entire traditions based around food, smells, flavors. It's, it's, just, it's a wonderful thing. You know, family connections are built around food. Yet food is only required to fuel our brain and our body. Now, I'm not here to talk to you about how you should only eat healthy food. I'm here to suggest that with a lens of resilience, you just pick which foods you eat when. And here's why. Food has a significant impact on your brain and your brain health. And foods high in sugar, so that's 50% sugar and higher, release serotonin. And our brains love it. Love it. It gives us a short high. But what happens is that it's highly addictive and if you don't believe me, we have a, um, a book in psychology called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, version 5. And I'm pretty sure you'll find sugar addiction right there next to opioid addiction because it's real. And anyone who's tried to give up sugar for more than three days knows what I'm talking about. So the brain wants more sugar, wants that serotonin, produces dopamine in order to motivate you into action, in order to get more sugar. So you get binge behavior, such as, I'll only have one lolly out of that bag. Oh, I've eaten the whole pack. How did that happen? Dopamine. It's addictive. You want more. And you're putting yourself on an emotional roller coaster. Now what happens 
is that when we feel stressed or we feel low in resilience, we reach for those bad foods as comfort foods or we reach for them because they're convenient to us. So we'll just get takeout because I'm too tired, too stressed to cook or let's call in pizza because we're all working late or everyone's had such a tough time, let's have some sweets. Wonderful gestures. But what it does is it puts us on a roller coaster that we struggle with. It reduces our brain health and makes it very, very easy for that amygdala hijack to take over. Remembering the aim of resilience is to have the prefrontal cortex as ready and able as possible to make those good decisions with the backup of the hippocampus. But if our resilience is low, if we're tired, if we're not exercising and we're eating bad food, we're giving ourselves a really hard task. Yet if we took baby steps in each of these three areas we would do significantly better. Now my suggestion is, coming from somebody as who loves hamburgers, who loves sweets and ice cream, don't cut it out of your life. But save it for times when you are relaxed. Save it for the weekend. Save it for a celebration. I guarantee you'll enjoy it more. But also it means that when you need it, when you need the nutrients, when your brain health is low, if you can really consciously make sure you're reaching for grains, vegetables, proteins, with as little process as possible. So anything in its natural state is going to be much better for your brain. And this is hard to do. I've, I fall into this trap often. Reach for the healthy stuff when you're stressed and your brain will be stronger. Reach for the bad stuff when you're celebrating and you'll enjoy it more. So if you think now, okay, to increase my brain health gives me a better chance to engage my prefrontal cortex, will make me slightly more resilient when faced with difficult situations. Now think, okay, I can take baby steps. I can take baby steps towards food, baby steps towards sleep and baby steps towards exercise. That suit of armor is going to look pretty good. That's going to give you that little bit more brain health and resilience when you're placed in those situations. So now's the time for you to think, okay, what could I do? Do I go to sleep 20 minutes more every night or just three times a week? Do I save that food for the weekend, that food that I love that's high in sugar and focus on fueling my body and my brain better during the week? And do I make sure that I move around much more often and I don't find myself trapped by sitting still all day as our bodies are not designed to do. What can you do? Thanks very much, everyone.